Türkiye'de Kösem Sultan Hazretleri. Sultanım, hoş geldiniz. Sefalar getirdiniz. Nihayet döndünüz. Hünkeroğlum burada yokken sarayı boş bırakmak olmaz. Şehzadelerimin emniyeti için burada olmam gerekiyor. Validem, hoş geldiniz. Fakat hünkârımızın katı emri var. Gelmeniz yasak. Kim mani olacak buna? Sen mi? Hangi sıfatla? Hünkârımız gitmeden evvel haremi bana emanet ettiler. Ne gerekiyorsa yap. Şu kubbenin altında senin emirlerine riayet edecek tek bir kişi bile bulamaz. You're listening to the seasoned migrant, a show about culture, migration and ideas and how these have shaped our understanding of the world. I'm Leonard Vaut and I'm Yusuf Amanola. And on this episode, we're talking about Turkish dramas, politics in popular television. So last season, we asked everyone on our Instagram story for suggestions for topics for these episodes. And Faria came back with the really great idea of doing Turkish dramas. And of course, that was very in tune with the kind of stuff that we'd been doing. For example, with K-pop looking at cultural production in the global south. And of course, to our episode on telenovelas. And looking at how a region, or in this case, a country, became really influential and popular with its television content. And what was particularly exciting about Turkish dramas was looking at the intersections between the industry and how it affected and influenced geopolitics in the region. And the meteoric rise of these Turkish dramas is really evident to see in places like Pakistan, where the prime minister Imran Khan has been publicly praising these shows. And one of them in particular, Resurrection Ertugrul, has not just had major success in the country, but all over the world and has really struck a chord with a lot of people. And the content of these Turkish shows have really thrown questions to the viewers about identity and to governments regarding soft power. So the discussion of the role of identity in these shows really starts with what modern Turkish identity actually is. And that begins at the start of the 20th century, where the founding father of the Republic of Turkey, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, looked to modernize the country. And the way he saw fit was by westernizing and secularizing it, and therefore moving away from its Islamic roots. And that involved things like replacing the Arabic alphabet with a Roman one and removing Arabic words from the Turkish language. And the beginnings of Turkish television actually had a lot to do with this new project for a national entity. The state realized early on that actually the country was quite loosely connected under the Ottoman Empire with a number of different ethnicities and even languages. So as a way of promoting this new narrative of Turkishness, they set up the Turkish Television 
and Radio Authority, or the TRT for short. And through all the broadcasting done by the state, which actually monopolized all kind of media in the country, they pushed for new ideas of what it meant to be Turkish. It defined what Turkish music was or pushed for this Turkish language that Ataturk was trying to shape. And in general, just having television across the country created a national audience which fed into the idea of belonging to Turkey. And so fast forward to the 1990s and the official television monopoly of TRT was lifted by the Turkish government. But at the same time, private broadcasting had actually been operating beforehand. So even by 1989, there was a private channel that was challenging the state media, but it got away with it because it was actually stationed in Germany. So while that channel and other private stations that would follow it were concentrated on capturing the market of Turkish people in Western Europe, TRT began a big campaign to target ethnically Turkish viewers in ex-Soviet countries. And so Turkish channels really were targeting international appeal right from the beginning. And these channels and the television dramas weren't just really popular among Turkish viewers. They were also really popular for viewers in neighboring Arab countries. And of course, the Arab media sector had itself mirrored the growth and development of the sector in Turkey. They themselves had over 700 satellite channels to choose from. But two shows in particular broke through and became extremely popular in the Arab world. And those were Noor and Valley of the Wolves. And in fact, they had such a large viewership that it accounted for a 21% increase in the number of tourists from the UAE to Turkey in 2009, and a 50% increase of tourists from Morocco. And the thing is that even though both Noor and Valley of the Wolves were extremely popular, they follow very different storylines. So for example, with Noor, it's about a rural girl that moves to the city to find love and become a fashion designer and as a result gets embroiled in family politics and making a new life for herself in the big city. But with Valley of the Wolves, it follows an agent of the Turkish National Intelligence Organization that fights against different foreign enemies. And the interesting thing is that these shows reproduce the concerns of the country, one dealing with identity and the other with its geopolitical concerns. Here to talk to us about the popularity and geopolitics behind Turkish dramas in the Middle East and around the world is Yasmin Çelikul, researcher at the Annenberg School for Communication at UPenn. Thank you so much, Yasmin, for being a part of this episode. So for our listeners who might not be familiar, could you tell us about the context of Turkish television dramas? Which shows have been the most popular of the last two decades and where have they found popularity outside the country? Uh, So Turkish television series, they are the second largest exported TV series globally after the U.S., which is a huge accomplishment coming from the global south. And they are viewed all over the world and also on Netflix. And there are also shows produced for YouTube as well in over 100 countries, over 500 million viewers. Um, A couple of TV series that have been particularly uh, popular are 
There are a few that are historical dramas and um, a few um, what we would call maybe telenovelas, soap opera type, um, or associate with that genre, the romance uh, and relationships and such. One that everyone <laughs> seems to be talking about now is uh, Resurrection Arturul. That one is, it fascinates. I mean, it, it ended in 2019, but people are still talking about it, writing about it, thinking about it. Viewers are watching reruns. Um, and what it is, is it's a historical drama about the 13th century story of Ertuğrul Ghazi. And of course, he's the father of Osman, who founded um, the Ottoman Empire. And I lived in Turkey eight years before doing this research, and I never heard of Ertuğrul Ghazi. <laughs> and I'm sure he's not very studied in history either. But all of a sudden, he becomes this global phenomenon. And... Lahore residents in um, Pakistan erect a statue of Ertuğrul Ghazi and people are naming their babies after Ertuğrul. Um, and one of the partners of a man who was killed uh, in the Christchurch bombing in New Zealand, she call, she refers to her husband as like, he was my everything, my Ertuğrul. <laughs> it, it has just been recon recontextualized in so many ways. And it means so much, it, it seems, especially to uh, Muslims, because all of a sudden, you know, in the face of Islamophobia and blatant attacks, attacks against Muslims, like in China and Malaysia, and uh, all of a sudden you see this Muslim hero who not only uh, fights against, you know, the West, but also wins. So that seems to be really... I don't know, kind of treating some wounds that Muslims fear or feel around the world. So that's one. Uh, another one is Magnificent Century, and that was all that was sold to over 100 countries. Um, and what was fascinating about that one is that it was also really popular in former Ottoman realms, such as the Middle East and the Balkans. So Magnificent Century is, and what, the reason it's so interesting is because it's a historical drama about Suleiman the Magnificent, the longest reigning sultan who expanded Ottoman lands and Ottoman civilization in law, literature, art, and architecture. And that's great, except he also went to the Balkans and took over the, those lands. <laughs> so, and I grew up in Bulgaria and my ethnicity is Turkish. So in school, in elementary school, we studied about the barbaric Turks who came over and, you know, enslaved the country for five centuries. That was the narrative. That was what we were taught. But then all of a sudden, Magnificent Century goes <laughs> to Bulgaria and, and becomes like this huge media phenomenon. People are just fascinated as, you know, in the Balkans and also the Middle East. But although that wasn't the first one that went to Bulgaria, maybe that also kind of helped <laughs> because people were already used to the idea that maybe Turks aren't the barbaric savages that they were taught they were. Um, the first series that actually went to a spearheaded distribution in many countries was um, 1001 Nights, uh, kind of an Orientalist name, <laughs> we could say, but nothing was Orientalist in the drama itself because the TV series, it was about this, uh, the single mother whose son needed uh, leukemia treatment. So she went and asked her boss for money, you know, alone, but he said, kind of like indecent proposal movie stylish, he said, if you spend one night with me, then you can have it, and so on. So 
but in this movie, um, which, like I said, it was the first movie to go to the Balkans and also Latin America. Uh, and it was also a huge hit in Colombia, Argentina, Brazil, Ecuador, and Uruguay. People, like, especially in Bulgaria, I think, because during socialist rule in Bulgaria, there is robust media production, again, to show the Turks as these, whatever pictures of, like, the other you can make in your head, that's what the Turks were. They were the ultimate undesired other. Uh, they came in, you know, according to these media productions, the Bulgarians, and I know also uh, in other countries, in uh, Serbia and also Georgia specifically, I know that there are other productions like that. But the Turks come and they pillage and they destroy and they rape and they take over and they force everyone to be Muslim. That was the image. But in <laughs> movies such as, or in TV series such as 1000 Nights, all of a sudden you see these really attractive actors, they don't appear to be oppressed. Like the mother in 1001 Nights, Shehrazad was her name. Um, she actually like has her own architecture firm. Um, she doesn't appear to be dependent on men, you know, for her livelihood because she's a successful woman um, and so on. And, and also uh, people saw, I think a lot of viewers that, oh, like Turks appear to have the same issues that we do, you know, with um, urbanization, like very aggressive modernization and uh, globalization, all of that stuff. So that was something else that people could really relate to. Um, and another series, of course, um, that was a huge hit in the Middle East. And that's what started the what some called the Turkish invasion in the Middle East is uh, Noor, known as Gümüş uh, in Turkish. Uh, and the final episode of that one, I think, is so notable. It's 84 million people in the Middle East viewed Noor, uh, and it inspired merchandise, fatwas, <laughs> fashion and beauty, interior design, and divorces. So, and, and in that one, um, as 1001 Nights did elsewhere, um, what my advisor Marwan Kredi actually termed, uh, along with uh, Omar Al-Ghazi, accessible modernity. So in that TV series, uh, viewers all of a sudden saw a Muslim country, so Turkish uh, people in a Muslim country, at the same time, you know, living in uh, arguably democratic conditions, uh, but modern uh, and uh, neoliberal and also social conservative. So a very attractive package, <laughs> which um, uh, Marwan Craig and uh, Omar Al-Ghazi uh, termed neo-Ottoman cool, because indeed, uh, all of a sudden, the Ottoman Empire, all of those images that I described a few minutes ago, became this, this incredible, um, accessible modernity and a, a great alternative to, you know, uh, Western hegemony, uh, and that along with Valley of the Wolves, which was also really popular in the Middle East, for similar reasons, um, as I, I would argue, <laughs> Resurrection Arturol, because again, the Muslims were uh, powerful fighting hegemonic source uh, or fighting hegemonic powers. So, uh, and of course, namely American Israeli conspirators 
Uh, and uh, something else that really made, I think, Noor and other TV series in the Middle East particularly uh, popular is that they were dubbed in Syrian dialect. So Syrian TV series were already popular uh, as Egyptian TV series prior. Um, so I think many viewers almost kind of forgot that they're Turkish too, <laughs> in a sense. Um, and they're just really high production uh, quality and they show like realism uh, protagonists, you know, women don't wake up with full makeup and full hair, <laughs> for example. So, yeah. And Yasmin, how have Turkish dramas influenced new narratives about the history and identity of Turkey in relation to the Ottoman era? And what has been the significance of these narratives? Right. So these narratives have really unsettled many elites in many countries, uh, not just the Middle East. Uh, I actually watched this video. Uh, I think it's like a promotional resurrection actual video, but uh, in Gaza, and the <laughs> and some viewers actually say we're taught real history, a history that was not taught in schools. <laughs> so more than one viewer said this. So if you imagine this on a grand scale, uh, these viewers all around the world are getting. And of course, it's not all, I mean, I'm not arguing that everyone, you know, believes everything they see in Resurrection Ejderal, but it positions TV, the Turkish TV series is um, so powerful in propagating the story of Turkey and the history of Turkey in ways that the Turkish government, that the current Turkish government seems most advantageous for its own position. So um, it really topples uh, narratives that, you know, particular states want to carry forward as far as Turkey. So like in Bulgaria, I think elites, uh, nationalists, Europeanists who are really against Turkish TV series, and I'm not saying all elites are, they're not, but those who are would have a really hard time, I think, convincing people now that Turks are still barbaric and nobody should go to Turkey and so on because of the power of these Turkish TV series or that um, when I was growing up, uh, Turkey was the place where people uh, where children didn't go to school. They worked and uh, they uh, you had to buy your own water. Even water was not free and it was just this terrible place and there were too many guns and too much violence. But they see these TV series and you have this like huge other impression so and same with russia um i i study russia as well uh and <laughs> it was there they're actually going a step further so not just so in the middle east you hear a lot um of rhetoric against the turkish tv series coming from elites the clergy uh, etc but in russia during a geopolitical crisis between Russia and Turkey, <laughs> there was talk about banning the Turkish TV series, as is, as appears to be instinctual. You know, there's a geopolitical crisis, boom, the Turkish series are the first to go out the window. <laughs> but in Russia, instead of banning them, they decided to channel them. So they decided, so um, in 2015, when Turkey shot a Russian jet, some say over Syrian airspace, some say not, but when Russia, <laughs> when the Russian jet was shot down by Turkey, uh, this froze all relations between the countries from the Russian side, of course. 
And while two um, Duma deputies recommended the ban of Turkish series, the Turkish series were not banned and a new Turkish production began to be made. Um, and that production is called East-West. And in it, <laughs> uh, East, of course, is Turkey in all of the Orientalist images you can imagine. And West is the progressive, modern, more Western than West Russia. Um, so I think elites are finding interesting ways to grapple with the problem of the popularity of Turkish series in their country, such as uh, productions like that. Um, and same with Saudi Arabia, they produced this series called uh, Kingdom of Fire. So I think that was kind of in reply to Resurrection Arturo. So to show like, this is what really happened. Um, it was about Egypt and about atrocities committed by Ottomans uh, in Egypt, but that was not nearly as popular. Can't, could not even compete with Resurrection Arturo. And so how have these representations and their popularity interacted and sometimes been at odds with power dynamics in the Middle East? Uh, like I said, whenever there's a geopolitical crisis of some sort, Turkish TV series are the first target, it, it seems, for, for bans and boycotts. So uh, most recently in 2018, the Middle East Broadcasting Center, NBC, uh, and NBC was actually the first importer of TV series as well, started with Noor, <laughs> but they announced via uh, United Arab Emirates Media that they're going to ban Turkish drama series. They didn't provide a reason, but of course it was, it, it appears that it was because Turkey supported Qatar throughout the Gulf states blockade um, of their neighbor. So, and Turkey supports the Muslim Brotherhood and Saudi Arabia, Egypt, uh, well, since Morsi was ousted um, and also the UAE, that's why they, they, they have uh, some beef now with Turkey and Qatar, but um, that's one way that they deal with it. Um, and also in Egypt, uh, there is a boycott in 2013. Again, uh, Erdogan supported um, Morsi and, and the Muslim Brotherhood. So, um, but of course, it's not just this either. What happens is, for example, Egypt already had a suffering television industry. So Turkey, um, and this was also the case in other countries such as um, Bangladesh and Kazakhstan, where television industry professionals um, and um, executives and, and so on and actors, <laughs> everyone seems to be suffering because uh, they lose jobs and they lose um, even their studios because they can't pay rent anymore, etc. Because Turkish TV series are so popular and there isn't such a demand for local productions. So when a ban like this is suggested or a boycott, then it becomes very convenient for TV industry professionals to also, you know, join the choir and, <laughs> and, and propagate that. And from all of this, I guess that we can see that soft power has played an important role in the spread and reception of these Turkish dramas. Do you think that this arena of soft power will become increasingly more contested in the future, particularly as we see more players and with more at stake? I was thinking about that question. And I'm, I mean, I think that... Um thanks to Trump and recent US politics, but especially since 9-11, uh, 
America has already lost a lot of prestige uh, globally and is not so, and also um, culturally as well. So before uh, the U.S. really dominated uh, TV series exports and TV culture and through cinema, but now I think, again, I'll have to give Bulgaria as an example because I do a lot of research um, uh, that has to do with Bulgaria, but the kind of um, liberal values and, um, I don't know, freedom that America uh, publicizes through American cultural productions is kind of pushed back. So uh, after the fall of communist rule in Bulgaria in 1989, people really embraced <laughs> all of that freedom. You know, you can imagine a, a teenager going to college for the first time, first year, yeah, let's party and let's do this and no parents and yay. But then they saw all of the problems that come with that kind of <laughs> freedom. So now uh, a lot of many viewers in Bulgaria, actually, they are against Bulgarian series well because the Bulgarian series emulate American series so much. So they the viewers complain that um, there's just too much uh, violence or too much alcohol, drugs, um, salacious behavior, <laughs> and so on. And that's why they appreciate the Turkish series more. Um, as appears to be uh, in other places such as Latin America, which would be surprising because they've had Brazilian uh, series and Mexican TV series. And you would think that, you know, it's public displays of affection and <laughs> that kind of stuff in the series uh, are a norm and they're accustomed to it. But it seems that people are kind of uh, pushing back against, like I said, that and embracing more, um, you know, being a little more conservative, more family values, um, maybe even kind of feeling nostalgic about times past. So my point was that while America appears to be kind of losing that again, the, it's still immensely popular, of course, we can't uh, say that it's lost yet, but um, we do see other players such as Turkish um, TV series and also Bollywood and South Korean TV series uh, also be embraced by people who maybe just have had enough of American culture and <laughs> need something different and are also grappling with uh, glo globalization and urbanization and those other series meet their needs more than uh, and, and they're more relatable than American series. Thank you so much again, Yasmin, for giving us an insight into what Turkish dramas have represented for its audiences and your own personal account of how Bulgaria's perception of Turkey changed alongside the new narratives in these shows. Thank you so much for listening to the episode and making it this far. We've got many more exciting stories coming up in future episodes and on our Instagram page at seasoned.migrant. If you have any thoughts, any comments or any ideas for future topics, please send us a message. Also, we love feedback, so let us know what you loved and how we could improve. You've been listening to the Seasoned Migrant Podcast. We'll be back next week.
Goodbye.